Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here. And I want to encourage you to look in your bulletin. On the inside of the bulletin, there's a passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at from 2 Corinthians, as well as a place to take notes there. But I want to start out by just reminding us that uh, we're in a series called Complex, Meeting God in the Mess. And uh, I want to ask ourselves today, like, why is life so difficult? Okay, we've been hitting different things in the mess of life, and one of the things that rings constantly in our lives is that life is difficult. It's hard. Um, Jesus says that he has come to set us free. So why are we so ensnared by difficulties and challenges and suffering? Why do bad things happen to people? Why does God allow this to happen? Um, why is life so hard? Um, life is filled with suffering that is complex, and we all think that life is supposed to be easy. Like there's this sense about us, right, that if life is difficult, then we must be doing something wrong. And this isn't all our fault. This is a message that is communicated to us several thousand times a day in media, in ads. Like, oh yeah, your life is hard. You have a problem. Well, it's because you don't have this product. It's because you're not wearing these clothes. Uh, It's because you're not hanging out in this place. It's because you're not eating this kind of food or drinking this kind of beer. And so so we think that if life is difficult, we must be doing something wrong. And, And Christians think this too. Christians think, man, if I'm obeying God's commands, then life is supposed to be easy. Didn't Jesus actually say this in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. There you go. Got a verse. If life's not easy, I must be doing something wrong. And yet here I am obeying God's commands. And doesn't God owe me all the sacrifices? I'm trying to live for you, God. Why are you making it so difficult? Wouldn't it be better if the Christians all had perfect lives that were super easy? Then everybody could look at and go, oh, yeah, I want that life. Well, if you just believe in Jesus, then you can have this life. Okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus. And all of a sudden, your life now becomes easy. There are people on television uh, that if you just send them all your money, you can have that easy life. Simple as that. So the reality is that the bottom line is that we think this. If life is hard, we must be doing something wrong. This is part of the warp and the woof of our culture. And I want to tell you loud and clear this morning at 1031 that this is a lie. This is just a bold-faced lie. It's a lie that is perpetrated all over the place in our lives and in our culture. But it is a lie It's not true. And and the worst part about this lie is that this is a lie that makes us think that in the mess of our lives, God has abandoned us. This is why we think when bad things happen, God must not be near us. It's a lie. And so today we're going to read the life story of someone who had one of the best lives in history. One of the most productive people who ever walked the face of the earth. This was the Apostle Paul. Okay, the Apostle Paul was someone who hated and persecuted Christians, but then he became one. And his whole life turned around. Um, 
Paul ended up writing half of the New Testament. So there's 27 books in the New Testament, 27 documents. Some are longer than others. Paul wrote 13 of them. So it's just under half for those of you like me who are math majors. And so I want to look at this part of Paul's story because I want you to see how he himself interpreted the difficulties of his life. I want you to see the way Paul thought about his own difficulty and his own suffering to see how it matches up against the way you think about your difficulties and your suffering. To think about how it compares to the way the messages that we get from media and advertising and things like that. And we're also going to see in this how God really thinks and what God really thinks about suffering and the difficulties that are in our lives. And so 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, it's in your bulletin, and I'm going to put the beginning of it here up on the screen. Uh, Let's start with verse 7, friends. This is God's word. Listen to this. Um, So to keep me, this is Paul talking, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So twice, you see that? At the beginning and the end, Paul says in, this, in these verses, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul says, God wants me humble. And so suffering was given to me. And the, the verb there, just to get a little bit English technical on you, um, it's a reflection of the Greek. The, the, the idea of was given is passive. And so this could mean that God was passively allowing this into Paul's life, not actively causing it. Okay, that's significant uh, for some folks. And Paul says, though, you see what he says there? He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So you have to understand that God revealed incredible things to Paul. As I said before, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. He could argue that he was the most inspired person in human history. Right? The person that God inspired to write more and more often than anyone else. Um, and this could easily have made him arrogant. To know that the impact that he's had on the world, to know the impact that he has, the special role that he played in human history, Um, It could have made him think he was better than everyone else. I mean, certainly he knew more. He was actually the leader. Think about this. He was the leader that God called to make sure that every nation on earth outside of Israel could learn about Jesus. Wow. Wow. Every non-Jewish Christian in human history is a Christian in part because of Paul. We're talking about billions and billions of people who owe their faith in part to this man. And that's a big deal. And so Paul knew that in light of this incredibly special role that he was called to play, that his suffering was designed to keep him humble. His suffering was designed, this verse says, to keep him from becoming conceited. And maybe the same is true for us. Maybe here we can find a connection. Like we might not have the same place and the same role that Paul has, uh, but maybe for us. You know, we don't always mean to be arrogant. Um, I don't know that anybody ever sets out to be arrogant. Usually you're just excited about what God is doing in your life, or excited about the gifts that you have, and it sort of takes over. It starts a little bit, and then it grows. Um, 
I think we can easily, though, come across, even when we don't mean to be arrogant, we can come across like we're better than other people because we know God and we're loved by Him. Sometimes the ways that Christians talk about themselves and talk about their relationship with God can make other people think, oh man, you think you're better than me. And so, in your suffering, in your difficulties right now in life, in the pressure that you're under, maybe God is keeping you humble so that your life can actually show God to others. Um, So that uh, your suffering might remind you to constantly remember that you're actually not better than anybody else um, because it keeps you close to God and we are who we are because of God's love. Well, Paul was given what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Right again, still with verse 7, this thorn in the flesh. And so, you know, ever had one of these? It's what he had. You know, when was the last time you had a splinter? And maybe not just a little tiny splinter, you know, kids would like stick, you know, sort of pins like in their skin just a little bit so it doesn't hurt at all. But what about the, when the splinter like really gets in there and gets under and maybe you don't know about it I mean, initially, it happens and you don't know. And then this happens where it gets red, it gets infected, maybe there's some pus. My experience is that, man, they're so like, like you're doing something and all of a sudden like, oh, that kind of hurt. Oh, hey, wait, that hurt. You know, and you're like, dang. And you look in, and it's like this tiny little thing. And yet It hurts. Right? I mean, these things hurt. These splinters hurt. Um, and every time you touch it, every time something passes over it, every time you have to use your hand, if it's in your hand, you feel the pain. Well, so Paul called this thorn in his flesh, he called it a messenger of Satan. You see that? And so Bible scholars offer different ideas about what this thorn in the flesh could be. Um, some think that it was a kind of physical problem. Some people think that there's a couple verses that, that seem to indicate that Paul might have had bad eyesight, and that was his thorn in the flesh. Like, he couldn't see well. Uh, and then um, other people think that he might have had something else physically wrong with him that was constantly irritating. Um, there's a story of an NFL uh, football coach, Bill Parcells, a really amazing football coach, had a lot of success, never won the Super Bowl, uh, but got there a bunch of times. He actually used to put a rock in his shoe when he coached. He would put a rock in his shoe that would hurt him. Every time he took a step with that foot, he would be in pain. And he did this all the time in his coaching career. Why? Because he wanted to be an irritable coach. <laughs> he wanted to be angry all the time. That was just part of what he thought made him effective as a leader. Um, and so he walked around every time he stepped, it's like, ugh, you know, Dang it, cut this out. You know, stop what you're doing. Go over I mean, this is just part of his, it, it added to the, the mystique that he wanted to create as a coach. And so this is kind of, I mean, as an intentional thorn in the flesh. Paul wasn't asking for this, but this is this messenger. It could have been something physically that irritated him constantly. Um, others have emphasized this messenger of Satan part of this. And they thought that actually this was a person that harassed Paul everywhere he went. Um, This was somebody that just dogged him and like heckled him. And you can see one example of this in Acts chapter 16. If you read that later, you can see an example of that. Paul actually doesn't elaborate on what the thorn was, uh, but rather on why the thorn was, which is, I think is actually more helpful for us. Um, The thorn was there to keep Paul from being conceited. And so if God has a purpose, think about this. So God has a purpose, right? Oh man, this is designed to keep me humble. This is designed to keep me from being conceited. That's God's purpose. Now, 
have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like, all right, well, so if God has a purpose for my suffering, well, then I just need to like grin and bear it. Have you ever felt that way? Like if God ever has a purpose, if, if you can come up and tell me that there's a purpose behind my suffering, well, then I pretty much just have to sit in it and I can't do anything about it. Do you ever feel that way? Well, that's not, how, that's not how Paul reacted, actually. So even Paul saw this purpose in God, this purpose from God in his suffering, and yet he actually did something about it. Okay? He prayed. Um, look at verse 8. Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul said, I wanted to get rid of this thorn in the flesh. I didn't want this. I begged God to remove it. So I like this. There's humanity here. Paul sees the purpose of God, but he doesn't like it. He sees God's purpose in it, but he's like, hey God, is there any other way we can do this? Like, how about if I just humble myself now and promise not to be conceited and you can take this thing away from me? Three times, Paul hated this. He begged God to take it away. He did this repeatedly. And so I just want to give you permission. If you're suffering, even if someone has told you there's a purpose for it, you don't have to like it and you don't have to sit in it. Okay? You can go to God and beg him to remove it. In fact, I think that's part of the design of it. Um, there was a pastor that I knew named Elliot Green. He told me this once and it just stuck with me. He said, when the weight of life is pushing down on you, that's the thumb of God pressing down on your shoulder so that you'll fall to your knees and pray. God knows that when we are praying, and the posture is not important, but it just obviously gives the image there. The posture is not important, but God doesn't want us able to live our lives apart from him. So I know how many of you are really under the pressure. You feel the weight. You've got more responsibility than you have time. Um, you've got problems in your marriage or with your children. You've got issues that you're dealing with and they're not going away. You feel overwhelmed and you don't know what to do. And it just feels like this weight that you carry around with you all the time. Paul is saying this should lead us into the presence of God. This should push you to pray. God invites us constantly to commune with him. God invites us to walk with him and have a relationship with him. For some of you, you are very relational people and your relationship with God will feel very personal. You'll have the sense that he is near. You'll have a sense that he is with you. You'll have a sense that he is speaking to you. You'll have a sense that you pray and God hears you and he responds. And that's not all of you. Okay, some of you are not as relational as others. Some of you are much more like task-driven kinds of folks. You're folks that say, give me the to-do list and I'll get it done. You're service-oriented people. That is wonderful. There is nothing wrong with you, actually. God desperately needs you in the world. He wants you and actually you reflect him. Because there's all kinds of stuff that God does without ever talking about it. Okay, And so for you, your relationship with God, your bowing your knee to pray, sometimes looks more like you just saying, God, I'm going to keep following you even though I'm struggling. 
God, I don't want to have this. I don't want this to be part of my life, but I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and I'm going to trust you in this. And you may not hear anything from God, but you might feel a sense that when you make that commitment and you live your life that way, that God is with you because he is. He is. And so God invites us to commune with him. He invites us to come with honesty, to plead with him, right? To beg him to take your suffering away. You can do that. God permits that. The apostle Paul himself didn't just endure it, but he begged God repeatedly to take it away. That's what Paul did. It's what we can do. We can cry out in honesty because when we lament, which is going to God with our frustration and our complaint, when we lament like that, our suffering becomes an opportunity for communion, becomes an opportunity for us to know God better. And so how does God answer the Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament? How does Paul answer someone, how does God answer someone who he is inspired to write half the New Testament? What does God say to Paul's repeated plea to remove the thorn in his flesh? God says no. God says no. Um, Verse 9. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So God's answer loud and clear to Paul, and I'm so thankful that he wrote this down. I'm so thankful that he wasn't embarrassed, that there were times that he prayed and God said no. Because for him to write this, and the fact that it's in the Bible means God wants us to know that there are times when we pray and from our perspective, we don't see any reason why this is in our lives. We don't see any reason why or any good that could possibly come out of this. And so we beg God, say, God, there's no reason for this. God, come on, what are you doing? How could good come out of this? Please take this away from me. There are times when God says, no. You're gonna continue to suffer in this way. There are times when God says, no, I won't remove the suffering. Now, I want you to realize that this is the fourth message in a series of sermons on the complexities of life and meeting God in the mess. This is not the only thing that God says. We've already seen at times God looks at us in the midst of our mess and he says, look, I'm not the one to blame for this. This is not my fault, but I'm here to help. Okay, And so this isn't the only thing. God is not cold-hearted when he says this. You have to realize that God is a loving father. And so if God says, no, I'm not going to remove this suffering from you, then you can have confidence that it is an expression of his loving fatherly care. Not that he's responsible for it, okay? And this is where it gets complicated. Um, But it's not that God is responsible for the suffering that we endure. But God says, you know what? This is actually, instead of taking this away, I'm going to leave you in it. Because I have something bigger in store. This is what he says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. So instead of me taking this away... I'm going to actually give you more grace. He says, Paul, you have my favor. That's what grace is. It's God's favor. It's his blessing. 
He says, you have my approval, Paul. You have my strength in you. And my power is perfect in your weakness. So like I said before, God wants people who can't do life on their own. God wants people. He didn't make people ever. In human history, no human being has ever been created to be able to live their life on their own without God. And there are times when things come up in our lives that God decides to use to keep us reminded of just how much we need him. And so in the mess of our life's difficulties and struggles, God says this, I'm not working to make your life easy. I'm working to make you strong. You have to understand that's what these verses are teaching us. God is saying to us, I am not working. My power is not unleashed in your life to make your life easy. But rather, I am working to make you strong. Can you feel the difference there? I mean, for us, we think, man, life would be so much better if it were easier. Life would be so much better if he was not in my life. Life would be so much better if she were not in my life. Life would be so much better if this problem could be taken away, if this struggle were to go away. And God is saying, look, I just want you to remember, I need you to know that my goal is not that you have an easy life. My goal is that you become incredibly unbelievably strong. This is God's design. Some of you have seen this graphic before. We've got your plan, and then we got God's plan. Right? This is your plan for your life, right? This is my plan. Just a relatively easy, not a flat ride. Come on, we're not, we're not asking for much. We're not, we're not asking for nothing, right? But, you know, just this slow, steady incline to the end, right? This is our plan. And frankly, we think this is the goal of life. We think this is, the, this is what we should be aiming for. And we're trying to, like, chop down the, the, the mountains. We're trying to fill in the holes so that we can have this coasting experience in life, right? And yet, God says, look, I'm not working to make your life easy. I'm working to make you strong. Um, At the end of your plan, you are overweight. You are flabby-muscled. You are irrelevant and have made zero impact on anything. Think about that. Do you really want for the next 50 years to live that life where you are not useful to anybody in any way. That's not what God wants. That is not what God wants. What God wants is for you to go through the valleys and the canyons with the rocks and the treacherous bridge and the I mean, the, the torrential waters with the zip line. I mean, he wants you climbing. He wants you through the storms. Like, this is God's desire for you, not because he's cruel, not because he's mean, but because 
at the end of God's life for you, man, you are bloodied and bruised, but you are strong. You've made an impact on other people. You have been the kind of person that God looks down and says, yeah, that's a life worth living. This is God's desire. He says, I'm not working to make your life easy. I'm working to make you strong. And so God does not want to save us from our problems. He wants us to experience him and then work through, his prob- through our problems with his grace and power. That's what God says to Paul. He says, my favor, my grace is sufficient for you, verse 9, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And if you're like me, this is a radical shift in your thinking, right? Because no matter how hard we try, it just feels like life shouldn't be this difficult. And God's saying, no, actually, when life gets difficult, that's you in the gym. That's you working out. That's you sitting up underneath the pressure and the difficulty and the problems. Instead of taking that weight away from you, I'm actually going to give you strength so that you can endure it. This is why we suffer. One of the reasons. It's not the only reason. This is one of the reasons why we suffer. And so what does this look like? What does it look like for God to make us strong? Well, a number of us got to hear one example of this um, at the speaker series event on Friday night. Um, Fella Bowens talked about this. Um, She's the CEO of the airport, part of our church. And that job, CEO of the airport, is an incredibly public job that puts her in the spotlight. So everything that she does is looked at under a magnifying glass. She's been in meetings where people have yelled at her. She's had newspapers ridicule and condemn her publicly. Um, And she talked about how the gospel gives her the strength that she needs. It comes from the gospel for her. It's like, how do you deal with all of this stuff? When people ridicule you, when people think they know everything and they don't know half of what they need to know in order to understand why you made the decision that you did, but you can never defend yourself because anything that you say is going to be used against you and twisted into weird things and is going to make you look even worse. How do you deal with this? And she said, this is what she said on Friday night. She said, I've had incredible highs in my work and I've had incredible lows. But at the end of every day, whether it was good or bad, I am still fellow Bowens, a child of God. I am a person valued by God. He loves me and my purpose is to serve him. And when I'm doing that, nothing else matters. No one else's opinion matters. That's one way that it means to be strengthened by the grace of God in your life. When you have the favor and the approval of God, it gives you power And that power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Now, this changed everything about the way that Paul looked at his life. Right? This thing hit him, this thorn in the flesh. He begs God over and over and over again to take this thing away from him. He wants the suffering gone. Then God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so then Paul 
goes on. Everything around him changed. The way that he thought about everything in life was radically transformed because of this idea that God wasn't desiring to make his life easy, but to make him strong. He goes on in verse 9, and he says, Therefore, because of this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He realizes, oh man, when it's the worst thing for me, when I'm in that place of weakness, when I can't do it on my own, I cry out to God and all of a sudden I get his strength and I can endure. And by God's strength, even though I am weak apart from him, I'm not apart from him. And so I'm strong. And so now, like this is the radical transformation. Paul is now proud of his weaknesses. Paul looks forward to his weaknesses. He's boasting in them. And remember, these are the weaknesses that he begged God to remove. Right? So he's begging God to remove them. They hurt, so he's like, God, take them away. But if they stay, God, now I'm going to be proud of them. I'm going to be proud that I can't do this on my own. I'm going to be proud of situations where I don't have what I need and I need to go to God and get his strength. I'm proud of these weaknesses because they bring me to the end of myself and they push me to rely on God. Because when I remember that I'm weak and I run into the presence of God, I remember that I have the strength of Jesus. The strength of Jesus. And that's where this becomes so much more than just crazy talk. In some ways, this could feel like power of positive thinking. No, 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 I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm strong, I'm strong. And it's not that. It's more than that. The key for all of this is in, this, is in verse 10. It's Jesus. Paul says it's for the sake of Christ that I'm content with these things. It's for the sake of Christ. He sees his suffering as connecting himself with Jesus. And Jesus had so much more than just a thorn in the flesh, right? He had an entire crown of thorns pushed into his flesh. I mean, Jesus had iron thorns and an iron spear thrust through his body to nail him to the cross. And these things, Paul realized, these were the punishments that Jesus endured to atone for the sins of the world so that we might find forgiveness. Jesus' suffering put the weight of sin on him and he endured it. He bore the weight of it and it crushed him into the grave. God has been searching from just about the beginning of creation. God has been searching for thousands of years for a man or a woman strong enough to conquer sin. God has been looking for someone who could endure and overcome the temptation and the pain and the problems and the sins of life. And so strong enough means a perfect life, putting God first in everything, but then strong enough to overcome the evil of the world, strong enough to bear up under the weight and the pressure of the world's temptation and sin. That's what Jesus was enduring on the cross. That's what the cross meant. It was Jesus taking the worst evil that could have been done to him. And when you understand that, 
you realize that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just, oh, hey, happy, Jesus isn't dead anymore. The resurrection is the climax of the story of the crucifixion. The resurrection of Jesus means that the world was fighting against Jesus and Jesus stood and took it and overcame it. That the evil of the world, the sin of the world is not strong enough to do Jesus in. I mean, it looked like it. The crucifixion looked like to everyone else that Jesus was defeated by the Romans and by the Jews and their evil conspiracy. Death was the ultimate failure for someone who called themselves a Messiah. But in the resurrection, Jesus emerged victorious. Jesus, the cross, became Jesus' chariot to enter into the depths of the grave and rescue us and to bring us out and give us new life where Jesus gives us his strength to follow him. And so Jesus overcame the worst. He overcame all of sin. And so the people who knew him, the people who followed him, this changed everything for them. The Bible tells us these stories of people who, when they were stolen from, they rejoiced because they knew they had an inheritance from God that no one could steal. They were being robbed. Their homes were being plundered and they rejoiced and they said, ha, yeah, you know what? We have an inheritance from God that you cannot touch. And losing this reminds us of how good it's going to be. The Bible tells us about people who, when they were beaten, they rejoiced because they were found worthy to suffer for Jesus. Think about that. They're beaten, and here's how they interpreted it. They said, we cannot believe that God has made us worthy to suffer for him. We can't believe that we have the privilege to be beaten for Jesus' sake, the privilege to suffer because we love Jesus. We can't believe that we're still alive and we're overcoming. These people didn't look at pain or depression of what life could have been, but they said, we are worthy. This is a weight that God has added to us so that we could show how strong he is in us. Man, can you take that today into the mess of your life? Stella was a great example of what this looks like today. Um, Generate Hope is another great example of this. Um, Generate Hope is a, is a ministry that was started out of our church by Susan Muncy who, uh, that, that rescues women uh, and provides long-term recovery for women who are sex trafficked. Um, because in the face of evil, God doesn't want to make our lives easy. He wants to give us strength. And so Susan Muncy was trafficked as a teenager and God says, look, I'm not going to make your life easy, but I'm going to give you strength. And so God gives her strength and now God is using her to rescue others. God says, I'm not going to give you an easy life, Susan. And Anybody who knows her life now knows how challenging, how difficult it is. God says, but I'm going to make you strong, strong enough to rescue others. And then God says, look, let me strengthen, let me give strength to thousands of volunteers, literally thousands of volunteers who are going to join Generate Hope, 
with their time and their energy and their money so that Generate Hope can continue to impact the lives of so many women. And then God says something new to us just a couple of months ago. I'm on the board of Generate Hope, and God says, you know what, let me strengthen a man named Jeff who's got an incredible heart to want to end sex trafficking. And let me make him, let me put in him a burden to find people who want to give incredible amounts of money to help rescue women from sex trafficking and end the sex slave industry. And so God gives Jeff strength and Jeff finds another guy who God has also been strengthening. God leads Jeff to a billionaire who is living by God's strengths. And God gives this billionaire the opportunity to buy a $13 million mansion and gift it to generate hope. This is news. God gifts a second home to generate hope so that generate hope can finally create a program for minors. For minors who have been enslaved and need to get out and need a way and there is no other option right now in San Diego. This is how God works. He gives us strength. He doesn't make life easy, but he gives us strength. And you're going to hear more about this news with Generate Hope, but this is the strength of God. He works through people. He gives them strength. We have someone else in our church, Barbara Morrison. Most of you know her, a lot of you know her. Failing health. She has no money. Um, She's lost her closest friend to death, and she's risking right now losing her housing. She came and shared with the Harbor City Youth Group, told her story, talked about it. And at one point, we got to ask her, Barbara, look, why aren't you depressed? Don't you you know your life is awful? You know what she said? Here's what she said. She said, my circumstances sure aren't great, but my heart is great because my God is great. This is it, right? Living out, I boast gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power is being made perfect in her weaknesses. Um, some of you remember Chad and Stephanie Phillips? Right, they were part of our church for, for a long time. Um, they had a baby who was born with a club foot. Um, man, and so that means that the foot is like twisted backwards. The baby has no idea that there's anything wrong, right? The baby doesn't need its foot, you know, initially. And yet, Chad and Stephanie had to make the unbelievably gut-wrenching and soul-wrenching decision to put their child through a series of breaking the child's foot, breaking their leg, and then putting the child in... A, you know, in a, in a boot and then breaking it again and putting it in a boot and breaking it again and putting it in a boot and each time successively as it heals and is rebroken and heals and it's rebroken. It he- I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine what it's like for the parents to have to put their... Ch- and the child's like, doesn't even know how to say what the heck is going on here. And yet over time, 
they chose to put their son through this pain and through this, conver- uh, through this confusion so that the child could walk, so that the child could be strong. I think this is an expression of God's heart toward us. Friends, there are parts of us that are wayward. There are parts of us that need healing. We need a God who loves us enough to break the bones that need to be broken, to allow us to endure the suffering that we need to endure so that we will cling to him with all of our heart, so that we will follow him and seek after him. Um, I want to end just with this verse, Ephesians 3.20. I used to think it said something, and I realized it actually says something else. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I used to quote this verse. I used to pray this verse. God, look, here's what I'm doing, but I need you to work outside of me. You need to do bigger and better than what I can think of. Like, God, do all these amazing things. Do your will. Do your work. Bless our church. Bless our people. Bless my life, Lord. Please work outside and apart. You're so much bigger than me. You're so much wider. You're doing all of this stuff out there. And I used to pray this vehemently. And a few weeks ago, as I was getting ready for this message... I saw this verse and I read the end of it and I thought, oh man, wait a minute, hold on. The way that God does far more abundantly above all that we ask or think is not apart from us at all. It's actually according to the power at work within us. Here's part of the incentive. Like this is God's power. It's at work in us. That God will do abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And he'll do it through the strength that he gives to us as we cling to him in the mess. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this truth. Lord, we confess that we haven't prayed. We haven't sought you like we should. Um, And God, we certainly haven't seen life the way that you see it. And we just want to let go of our expectations. We want to let go of our version and our plans for our lives. And in fear and trembling, God, knowing what it could mean for us, we want to accept your plan. God, please help us get to a place where we can honestly cry out to you about our weaknesses and our suffering, but then help us to hear you tell us that your grace is sufficient and that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus, meet us in our mess and renew your strength in us so that we know we're not alone and help us to connect with each other so that we're not suffering even alone here, but we'd be able to support each other. And Jesus, for those who are here and they don't have this relationship with you, would you show them that, you can, that, that they can trust you? Help them to turn from their plans and to reach out to the cross and find forgiveness in you. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.